Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to Synovus Energy's second quarter results. As a reminder, today's call is being recorded. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session. You can join the queue at any time by pressing star 1. Members of the investment community will have the opportunity to ask questions first. At the conclusion of that session, members of the media may then ask questions. Please be advised that this conference call may not re- be recorded or rebroadcast without the express consent of Synovus Energy. I would now like to turn the conference call over to Ms. Sherry Wendt, Director, Investor Relations. Please go ahead, Ms. Wendt. Thank you, Operator, and welcome everyone to our second quarter 2020 results conference call. Due to COVID-19 physical distancing guidelines, we do not have the entire leadership team together in the conference room downtown. Here with me is our President and Chief Executive Officer, Alex Corbet, our Chief Financial Officer, John McKenzie, our Chief Executive, our, our Executive Vice President Upstream, Nori Ramsey, and our Executive Vice President Downstream, Keith Chesson. They will answer your questions while the other leadership team members are in, leaders, in listen-only mode today from other locations. I refer you to the advisories located at the end of today's news release. These advisories describe the forward-looking information, non-GAAP measures, and oil and gas terms referred to today and outline the risk factors and assumptions relevant to this discussion. Additional information is available in our annual MD&A and our most most recent annual information form and Form 40F. The quarterly results have been presented in Canadian dollars and on a before royalties basis. We have also posted our results on our website at synovus.com. Alex will provide brief comments and then we will turn to the Q&A portion of the call. We would ask analysts to hold off on any detailed modeling questions and follow up directly with our investor relations team after the call. We would also ask that you keep to one question with a maximum of one follow-up question and then rejoin the queue for any other questions. Please go ahead, Alex. Thanks, Sherry, and good morning, everybody. I hope all of you are continuing to stay uh, safe and healthy. And although our economy is starting to open up, it's clear we're still far from being able to look in the rearview mirror at the impact of COVID-19. I I wanted to start, first off, by giving credit to our staff at Synovus for keeping our operations running safely and reliably and for adapting to all the additional measures we've put in place in response to the pandemic. It, It really has been incredible to witness the resiliency of our people and their dedication to looking out for one another. The field staff have been diligently following the new procedures to prevent the spread of the virus at our sites and camps, and staff have embraced technology to remain productive while working virtually. Through all of the changes, our teams remain focused on safety performance. And as an example of that, we had zero significant incidents across our operations in the first half of the year, and our Deep Basin team achieved a milestone of zero recordable injuries for an entire year, which I I think is truly 
uh, impressive uh, given given the the conditions that our employees and staff have had to work under. Well, some of our staff who were working remotely have gradually started returning to their regular job locations. We're proceeding cautiously to help ensure the safety of our people and the reliability of our operations. I want to provide details now about our response to the recent downturn, likely the worst quarter our industry has witnessed in recent memory. The second quarter presented commodity price instability beyond what anyone I think ever could have predicted. The sharp drop in oil demand and resulting unprecedented low oil prices experienced early in the quarter had a significant impact on our financial results. But the extreme volatility also highlighted what sets Sonovas apart from our peers. It presented an opportunity for our marketing and upstream teams to demonstrate why shareholders should have confidence in this company. We were able to leverage our low-cost structure and the flexibility of our assets to strategically access the highest returns for our products and maximize value for shareholders. In response to the sharp decline in oil prices in April, we quickly reduced production volumes at our oil sands operations while continuing to steam and store the mobilized oil in the reservoir. When the average price of Western Canadian Select increased almost tenfold in June compared with April, we acted fast to ramp up our oil sands production back up to take advantage of the improved pricing. Our low-cost structure means that with WCS prices at current levels, we are generating free funds flow and strengthening our balance sheet. During the quarter, essentially all the inventory that we wrote down in March was sold and we realized the inventory write-downs. That reduced adjusted funds flow and free funds flow by $529 million. Excluding the impact of these write-downs from the first quarter, we would have had positive adjusted funds flow of nearly $70 million in Q2. We've also been purchasing low-cost production credits from peers so that we can produce above our curtailment limit. That allowed us to push our June oil sands production to more than 405,000 barrels per day, including record volumes at our Christina Lake facility. I cannot overemphasize the value of our ability to take advantage of rapidly changing market conditions. In April, when WCS prices were less than $5 per barrel, we voluntarily reduced oil sand production to an average of just under 344,000 barrels a day. In June, when prices were nearly 10 times that, we ramped up production by 60,000 barrels a day, a more than 17% increase that happened over just a few weeks. At Christina Lake specifically, there was an 80,000 barrel per day difference from our lowest daily production in the second quarter to our highest day in June. Our downstream business is designed for flexibility as well, providing opportunities in terms of both timing and location of sales. This meant that in addition to timing our production over the past months, we were also able to use our diversified transportation and storage portfolio to defer sales from April into June when we were seeing higher price signals. The close working relationship between our marketing and operation teams are giving us a competitive advantage. Their quick action in June resulted in free funds flow for the month of more than $290 million. Meanwhile, the flexibility of our refineries meant that refining runs could be adjusted to take into account refined product demand signals 
to maximize value for our shareholders there as well. We believe we're on the way to recovery from the low point in the downturn in April, although we expect commodity price volatility for the foreseeable future. We are not counting on a swift recovery. Second, only to the safety of our staff, balance sheet strength remains our priority. This downturn demonstrated the value of our relentless focus on paying down debt, reducing costs, and maintaining capital discipline over the past years. You will continue to see that discipline at Synovus. We finished the quarter with net debt at around $8.2 billion. We remain committed to getting net debt down to $5 billion or below over the longer term. Given the outlook for pricing in the second half of 2020, we anticipate the level of net debt at the end of the second quarter to be the high point for the year. We have worked to ensure uh, we continue to have ample liquidity to withstand a continued period of low oil prices if necessary, and we remain focused on disciplined capital spending. We will be sticking with the reduced 2020 capital budget we announced in April, even if the price environment improves over the coming months. Before I turn to your questions, I want to encourage everyone to check out our environmental, social, and governance report that we released last week on synovus.com. This report provides context for the analysis we performed before setting our ESG focus area targets earlier this year, as well as details of our 2019 sustainability performance. We are committed to achieving those targets and to continuously improving our ESG reporting to ensure our shareholders and other stakeholders are fully informed about our performance. I feel this report really raises the bar for our industry when it comes to sustainability disclosure. Uh, with that, I'm uh, happy to take your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, you can join the queue to ask a question by pressing star 1. We will now begin the question and answer session and go to the first caller. First caller comes from Greg, Greg Party with RBC Capital. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Good morning, uh, and thanks for the rundown, Alex. A um, couple of questions. I guess the first one is, is um, you know, you mentioned that, that $5 billion has gone kind of from the target to the upper boundary. As you maybe look at the new world in terms of where oil prices might shake out or, or what kind of volatility we're facing, is there, a, is there a lower boundary maybe even in the threes that you'd be sort of looking at as, as maybe, maybe optimum optimum in terms of like running a really under-levered balance sheet going forward? Yeah, thanks, Greg. You, you know, I think it's a it's a really good uh, comment, and I think John and I have been quite pointed over the last few months about talking about five billion as ultimately an upper band. And you know, I think the easiest way for me to to answer that would be to say that um, our balance nothing has emphasized for me the importance of of balance sheet than the past four or five months, and I, I it is not. Uh, going to cause me any loss of sleep at night uh, if if we if we don't see compelling opportunities uh, driving driving that net debt down below five billion is not going to cause me any sleep and I think that's probably uh, directionally that's probably something that our investors should be thinking about. Okay, terrific. And then it, it might be a question for John, but maybe just around the hedging. I mean, we picked up the hedges. You put in, so you've sold, I don't know, 88 on 1,000, and then you've, you've got purchases for 56,000 at fixed pricing. So there's a little bit of a differential there, and there's a little bit of work you guys did on, on the spread. But how should we think about 
hedging and maybe why those were put in place, what have you. Yeah, Greg, what, what I would tell you is that at a corporate level, nothing has changed. You know, we still see the balance sheet as the right way um, to ultimately hedge our operations. But one thing you do need to understand about this company is we do have substantial pipeline um, and storage assets uh, that we use on a daily, monthly basis to optimize our pricing. So, um, you know, the hedge losses that you'll see both on a realized and unrealized basis in the financial statements at Q2 are really related to the optimization work we do in locking in margins uh, around those assets. What we saw in Q2 was some pretty significant contango opportunities in particular. Um, where those assets were um, quite valuable to us. So I'll just give you a quick example of, of how that works on an accounting basis so you're not surprised on a go-forward basis. But if the marketers have an opportunity in May, for example, to sell at $20 or sell forward um, in June, for example, at 24 you know, we can realize a margin of $4 by storing those, uh, those barrels for a month and selling them in June. So what they'll do is they'll forward sell them and they'll use a, a financial derivative to lock in that $4. On the accounting side, what we'll show is, for example, if June then closes at $40, we'll show a $40 realization, but a $16 hedge loss. So we've locked in the 24 um, in the month that we do it, but what the accounting does is it separates that transaction. So when you see contango opportunities and you see WTI rising through a quarter like this, that's kind of the result you're going to see on a go-forward basis. But it really reflects what we've done to kind of lock in margins uh, as a company. Okay, so I, I get the sales part. It's and I don't want to get too too far in the weeds here, but there were also you've also got like purchases right at 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 a couple of bucks higher. Is that this is is that related to the same thing? It's all the same thing. Okay. Okay. Terrific. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, no worries. Next question comes from Emily Chang with Goldman Sachs. Thank you. Um, maybe as a follow-up from Greg and to, to really double down on the message here, but net debt is back to early 2019 levels. And when you think about the deleveraging process ahead of you, um, this time around, are there any sort of interim targets uh, to to look for before you maybe switch the dividend back on, or are you now simply concentrating on hitting that uh, $5 billion net debt before you consider other areas to deploy capital? You know, I think uh, from from our perspective, uh, absolute priority is is the balance sheet until we get that debt back down to, to a level that we're a lot more comfortable with. And so I, 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 I would not uh, expect to see anything, uh, anything that would have us deviate materially from that in the in the near future. Yeah, Emily, it's John. I, I would just add on to that. You know, we are as a company still focused, you know, on the three things that Alex has talked about um, in depth in, in maintaining costs, you know, balance sheet integrity as well as um, liquidity. So, you know, although we see a lot of green shoots coming out of June, and, and we had a very good month. You know, we are laser focused on um, generating free cash flow through the next few months and applying that to the balance sheet before we consider uh, reinstituting the dividend. Great, that, that's super clear. And one follow up, if I may, um, just around spreads have been very tight uh, over the second quarter, but as you think about production ramping up, 
uh, in Canada. How do you think about where the light heavy differential comes out towards the back end of the year? And and when do you think production levels uh, in Canada as a whole return to pre-COVID-19 levels? Thank you. Emily, why don't don't I hand that off to Keith and uh, he can give his view and I I might add a little bit of color. Hey Emily, uh, thanks for the question. And you know what I would I would like to say is uh, you know when we were we were uh, sitting in April, we we ramped down production, um, and then coming into June, we saw what I would say record tight differentials. And and I think be, between the low in in April to the high in June, we've increased production at Christina Lake by eighty thousand barrels a day to capture that that record tightness and and generate uh, a significant free funds flow in the month. You know, as we look forward, you know, that, that opportunity prevailed because, you know, there's significant upstream production off in Canada, and we think that persists through the summer months. But, but rightly, as you indicate, uh, as we head into the fall, there could be some additional production coming back on. Now, you know, it's, it's uncertain. We, we think that uh, currently there's over 500,000 barrels a day still offline in Western Canada, and it's uncertain how much of that actually does come back. But, but it's something that we will watch uh, very closely, and uh, and obviously we, uh, if we do see the differential widen, and there are economics uh, to to uh, restart our rail program for for a longer period of time, we will uh, we will look at that opportunity if it makes economic sense. Great, that's helpful. Thank you. Next question comes from Phil Grush with J.P. Morgan. Hey, good morning. Um, First question, just I guess I'll ask one more on the deleveraging. Um, and John, I probably asked you this in the past, but is, is there anything else you think you could do, you know, inorganically to accelerate the process of deleveraging, asset sales or otherwise, uh, that you would think about? Maybe not in this exact environment, but you know, as you look ahead, say 12 to 18 months, uh, or would you say this is just going to be more of an organic process? Yeah, Phil, I think for for your modeling purposes and for general assumptions, you should think of this being an organic process. Um, You know, one thing we've been really clear about is we're not going to do anything to impair the value of FCCL. You know, we certainly see that as family silver. Um, And we're not going to do something in the short term that's going to have long-term implications to the value of that asset. You know, as it relates to the deep basin, we've been pretty clear. We've stood down uh, any kind of inorganic process there. Uh, we don't think that transaction values today reflect the long-term value of that asset um, as well. And then we're pretty happy with, obviously, WRB, which provides us that countercyclical cash flow and, and insulation um, against some of the heavy oil and differentials that we see in Western Canada. So by and large, uh, you should just assume it's going to be organic. Okay, understood. Um, second question would be um, just on the commentary about the June cash flow, obviously very strong um, uh, for the month. Would you say that that is uh, you know, sustainable as you move through the third quarter, or were, they, were there any one-time factors uh, that contributed to such a strong result on the month? I'm thinking maybe lagged condensate or something else. I'm just curious how you think about the rest of the year playing out. Yeah, Phil, you know, when you look at June, you're absolutely right. It was, you know, a terrific month, and there's there's pieces of June um, that I would describe as, as one time in, in order of magnitude, but um, thematically going forward, they still exist. 
two big drivers for June. One was the differential, the WTI, WCS differential narrowed to just over $4. So even on a historical basis, that is uh, an extremely tight differential. And then some of the condensate that we were purchasing in, in April and May started to flow through um, those June numbers. So in, in terms of order of magnitude uh, going forward, I don't think you'll see the same kind of performance. But do realize that uh, the differentials are still narrow for both July uh, and August, and the uh, condensate pricing is still quite favorable. So though I don't expect um, July-August to be as good as June, um, directionally they're consistent with June. Okay, great. Thank you. Next question comes from Manav Gupta with Credit Suisse. A little bit on this inventory adjustment of 329 million. Uh, is it a one-time? What contributed to it? And should we assume none of it comes back uh, as we go ahead? This is in the oil sand segment of yours. Sorry, I, mean, I think the question was on the inventory build on the balance sheet. Yeah, it's a 329 million charge that you're taking yeah. on your operating margin. Yeah, so what, what you'll remember is at the end of Q1, uh, we wrote off, I think, $588 million of inventory. And what you see is that start to come through in the month of April in particular. So we realized um, those inventory write-downs that we took at the end of Q1 on a cash basis in Q2. So the total inventory... Um, um, charge that we saw come through was 300 and, and some on the uh, on the oil sand side and the residual on the downstream side. Okay, and, and one quick follow-up, sir. Uh, obviously, June was very strong, but uh, when we look at the netbacks on both Foster Creek and Christian Lake, they're negative for the quarter. So should we assume basically you had a very bad April and then things improved a little in May, and then they really improved in June. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, what you should think about in, in terms of, you know, those netbacks is, is April was very weak as we realized those inventory write-downs, and then June was substantially better. So even with, I think the price of WTI went from 16 to 38 through the quarter, and it was even more dramatic on the WCS side, where I think we went from 3 to 40. Sorry, three, three to thirty-four. Um, so what you've seen through the uh, the quarter is is uh, uh, a period of improving performance, but on average, uh, it looks relatively weak when you take into account the inventory write downs. But June was much much better than what you see for an average. Perfect. And the last question is: You have temporarily suspended your Foster Creek rail car program, and in the quarter, the transportation blending costs has actually started to trend down. So I'm just trying to understand, should we assume a more trending downwards as some as the rail remains suspended, or this was also a function of lower condensate pricing? Oh, I, sorry, you're thinking of the rail program? Was that the question, Manif? Yeah, so I mean, I'm just trying to look at the transportation and blending costs at Foster Creek. Yeah. It started to come down from 1437 to 1132. I'm just trying to understand, uh, has the suspending of the rail program helped you out over there? Yeah, no, absolutely it has. And, and if you look at rail on, on a um, fully loaded basis to move 100,000 barrels a day of 
um, crew to Bruderheim, we were spending about 80 million a month. Um, now that we've ramped it down, we're incurring just the fixed charges, which is about 18 to 20. So that all gets reflected in the transportation costs. Now it doesn't all go to um, Foster Creek. It really depends on which barrels we move. Um, so it can be both, but the true savings is about 60 million a month, which is reflected across the company in our transportation uh, costs. Thank you so much for taking my questions. Next question. Next question comes from Benny Wong with Morgan Stanley. Hey guys, thanks for uh, taking my question. Uh, my first question is around uh, your your production profile in the back half of the year. Obviously, you guys exited the egg quarter with very strong volumes. I'm assuming oil prices will be a factor, but also wanted to get your thoughts uh, around availability to utilize more curtailment credits, especially you know as back half of the year there's going to be less industry maintenance activity going on. Uh, and on the refining demand side, still relatively soft uh, to normal levels. Just wanted to get your thoughts around how you think about that. Yeah, Benny, uh, I mean, we, we certainly uh, were able to take advantage in, uh, in Q2 of some uh, really attractively priced uh, credits. And, you know, I think uh, the, 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 the word is out and, and you know, we've, we've seen those uh, they, they've increased somewhat in price, but uh, maybe I'll, I'll let Keith kind of uh, comment on what we think for the balance of the year. Yeah, thanks for the question, Benny. You know, as, as we look through kind of the back half of the summer, um, you know, there still is significant turnaround activities uh, happening in the industry that keeping a fair amount of production offline. So, you know, availability of those credits to be able to produce, we think, is, uh, is going to be there. Uh, as we head into the back half of the year, you know, there's still a big question mark about how much of that production actually does come back, and and that will really drive the availability uh, of acquiring those credits. Um, but I would I would reiterate that if uh, if the differentials do widen, we do have a rail program there that can generate production credits uh, as well. And the way we stop the program. Is, is in a fashion that we have our cars stored at both our Bruderheim facility and some of our U.S. destinations to enable us to, uh, to quickly ramp the program back up if the economics make sense and we see a, a structural reason to want to do that for a, a longer period of time. That's great. Thanks, Keith. Appreciate your thoughts there. Uh, my follow-up is, is more for Alex. I guess I just wanted to tap into your extensive midstream and pipeline experience and, and get your perspective around the headlines we've been seeing around Line 5 and Dapple. You know, how do you think about the risk, uh, particularly if you see an extended shutdown of those pipelines? Um, and just more broadly, you know, is, is this an early indication of a, an even tougher environment ahead of us for just energy, energy infrastructure overall? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's a really good question, Benny, and I, I wish I, I'm not I'm not sure my experience gives me any any deeper insight, but uh, you know, I, I I guess I'd respond maybe specifically to Synovus, and then may, maybe I'll respond more broadly. You know, with respect to to our business, we we're, we don't see Dapple or Line Five really having significant implications uh, for our business. We do think it it could obviously you know have some impact on on the lighter grades, but for us. You know, we're not. We, we don't see it as as particularly material. But I think, as an industry, uh, my own personal observation, Dapple, I think, is a great example of a of a pipeline that went through an incredibly exhaustive 
environmental review and regulatory process, um, which finally, after after uh, you know extended debate, it uh, it received all of its permits. It's been in operation for two or three years, and and we now have a judge uh, who is uh, who, who believes. That it's appropriate to take that infrastructure out of service, um, you know. While we 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 debate, um, you know, the the environment, some environmental aspects. So I, I, I think that's quite concerning, and um, you know, I I hope it is. Dis I, I hope that uh, the legal issue is dispensed with very quickly, and and everything gets gets back to normal. And you know, this is not an issue. Uh, for the oil industry, I mean, we're we're seeing this on on basically all infrastructure uh, uh, across North America. So I think it is a significant issue. I, you know, from my perspective, I, you know, we identified uh, at probably the first day I got here, I identified that one of the biggest challenge for Synovus was market access and egress. And as I've said to many people, um, hope and prayer isn't a strategy. Um, and we need to have plans, it, it, particularly in a world where we may see continued challenges to pipelines. And, you know, that's why you've, you've seen us do the things we've done to secure more pipeline capacity, the work we've done uh, on supporting Enbridge's uh, contract carrier uh, regulatory application and, and the, uh, the, the early work uh, that we did on the DRU and, and all of that was from a perspective of, of creating options in a world uh, where it might be uh, might be more challenging. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate those thoughts. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Benny. Next question comes from Azit Sen with Bank of America. Thanks. Good morning. Um, if I could go to slide 10, which was, uh, I think, fairly interesting on Christina Lake uh, production volumes. Um, and I think... Uh, shows that you've managed your volumes pretty well with WCS. And uh, I think, Alex, you mentioned um, 80,000 80, barrels a day swing. My question is, um, you know, Christina Lake has low SOR in a low operating cost, I think in the 6 to $7 range. How does operating costs fluctuate when you, when you shift volumes this sharply? Is there an impact on operating costs? Hi, it's uh, Nori Ramsey here uh, from the Upstream Business. Um, what, we, what we did obviously in April is reduce our, our production at Christina Lake and then brought it back up again in June. So for a short period of time, our steam oil ratio went from what was normally 2 up to 2.1. And it'll, it'll go back down um, sub 2 again uh, throughout the year. So um, relatively speaking, it just stays flat. Um, we are 15% year on year down from 2019. Um, but but our our opex will stay within the guidelines that we provided earlier. Okay, thanks, Nori. And and then uh, my question on uh, third third party credits uh, that you acquired in May and June. Any any thoughts on pricing? How much does it cost you? And then looking forward in the back half of the year, um, you know I, there were there were comments made on that. But how about uh, the magnitude availability of credit? How how, how should we think about that? Like we we uh, see, we can't give up all of our uh, commercial secrets. But um, <laughs> why don't I uh, why don't I let Keith uh, uh, respond to that? Yeah, see, you know, uh, obviously, uh, pretty commercially sensitive information. But what I would say is, 
you know, what we saw through the second quarter was significant uh, upstream production turned off. Uh, so the availability of those credits, uh, they were readily available. Uh, we see that kind of persisting through the, the back half of the summer, uh, kind of the July, August timeframe as, as turnarounds are getting extended in uh, with some of our peers and, and therefore more production uh, remains offline than maybe originally envisioned. Um, you know, what I would say is you head into the fall, you know, obviously doing turnarounds in Canada in the winter is not a, uh, a good idea. So, so we do expect some of that production to come back. And, and the critical part will be relative to the overall curtailment levels uh, the Alberta government has set and the amount of production offline and the amount of rail that's moving. You know, are we in a uh, essentially balanced market or is there additional egress challenges? And then how quickly does uh, rail ramp up to meet those egress challenges? All of that will then determine kind of where the differential settles and the economics of, of railing. And, and the government also has the program in place that uh, if you rail, um, you do generate additional production credits. So in an economic, where that makes sense economically, uh, we would look at uh, turning our program back on. Appreciate the color, Keith. Just, um, is, the, is the credit market fairly liquid? Uh, yeah, it's fairly liquid. I mean, it it kind of runs month to month during the trade Thank cycles. Thank you. Thanks. Once, once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star one on your telephone keypad. And we have a question from Joe Jimino with Morningstar. Greg, thank you. Just got a quick question as you uh, think about your balance sheet. If you do generate free cash flow for the rest of the year, do you anticipate putting it, paying down your revolver, or maybe some of the uh, putting it towards maybe some of the maturities that start to uh, come up in the next few years. Yeah, Joe, it's it's John. Um, no, you're right, and you're you're thinking that um, you know the dollars today would go to the revolver versus um, um, into the bond market. Now that all being said, um, we are thinking about our um, 22s and our 23s um, and how we would refinance those going forward. So. It all comes into our thinking, but over the short term, um, any free cash flow is really going to get uh, applied to our banking facilities. Great. Thank you. Once again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. And we do not have any questions at this time. I will turn the call over to Ms. Wendt. Thanks, operator, and thanks, everyone, for joining us today. That concludes the Q&A and concludes our call. Have a great day. Thanks, everyone. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.